starts off with these words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You see, John Newton realized something. He realized grace is amazing. That someone even like him, someone far from God, a wretch as he calls himself in the hymn, could be saved, could be welcomed into God's family. So let me ask you this, are we amazed by grace? Are we in wonder at what the grace of God has done in our lives and continues to do in our lives? Because let me suggest, if we are not amazed by grace, it is because of two things. Number one, it is because we do not realize who we were before Christ. And number two, we do not realize who we are in Christ. If we don't understand either of those two things, we don't see grace as amazing. Because for those of us that are Christians, when we read passages like what we find in Ephesians 2, we should have that sense of amazement, like John Newton. We should feel astonished as we read these verses. So I hope that as we look at these words, we will see what is so amazing about grace, because that is exactly what Ephesians 2 shows us. So for those of you that take notes, you're going to get a sneak peek of how we're going to split up this passage. We are going to see who we were before Christ. And then we're going to look at verses 6 to 10, which is who we are in Christ. And I'm joining these two bits by what is potentially the greatest two verses in the Bible. And I have called it the baboon verse. All will become clear, don't worry. So we're going to look at who we were. If you read the first three verses, what, what is Paul saying in these verses? Paul is giving us a diagnosis. He's giving us a diagnosis of the human condition and the human heart. And as a diagnosis, Paul gives us five symptoms of what, what we as humans, what we are like without God in our lives. And handily enough, I have named all these symptoms uh, beginning with the letter D. So the first symptom we have is that we are dead. If you look at verse one, it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. The human condition of sin leaves us spiritually dead. This is inherited from our first parents, Adam and Eve, when they ate the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which God told them not to do. He said, if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. The moment they ate of the fruit, they died spiritually. A rift opened between the holy God and then the sinful man. And as a result, every human being that has been born since then has been dead spiritually. Why is this important? Because spiritually dead people do not become spiritually alive on their own. Dead people do not resurrect themselves. Uh, symptom number two, we are drifting. If you look at verse two, um, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. We are drifting. We are following the ways of this world. 
we are drifting, the world tells you or us what our values are. It tells us what is important. It tells you how we should act, how we should live. And we are just drifting along. We are following the crowd and not God. Symptom number three, we are disobedient. If you look at the end of verse two, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The sinful human condition is one where our natural state in Adam rejects the law of God. We naturally disobey. Inwardly, there is a natural streak of rebellion in us all. The fourth symptom, we're going quite quickly through these because there's a lot in Ephesians chapter 2. The fourth symptom, we follow our own desires. If you look at verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. A bit like um, how our natural inclination is to disobey, um, we also naturally follow our own desires. We follow our own hearts. And the Bible tells us that our desires, our hearts are hampered by the fall, are hampered by sin. We live, as verse 3 says, to gratify the cravings of our sinful nature. Our fallen human conditions means we are slaves to sin. Think about it this way. Think about someone that works in a t-shirt factory. They work for a whole day producing t-shirts, embossing them, all that. It gets to the end, end of the day and they look and they realize they have an ink stain on their thumb. Everything they have done has been tainted or stained or corrupted by the stain on their thumb. So in our lives, everything we are, everything we do, even our desires are stained and corrupted by sin. And then this leads us to our last symptom, one that is maybe the most jarring, is that we are deserving of wrath. Um, if you look at the end of verse three, it says, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. As a result of our deadness and sin, as a result of living ways explained by these last few points, we are deserving objects of God's wrath. But it is not just you or me, it is a universal problem. And verse 3 um, says, like the rest of us. If you look at other translations, it says, the whole of mankind. Individually and as a whole, we as a human race have turned our backs on God. We have done what we want, we desire. Now, society at large will look at these symptoms and they will say, Paul is being overly harsh because today the world teaches that everyone is inherently good and it is the bad things externally that come in and affect our lives. Whereas the Bible teaches that we are inherently sinful, that in order to be good, we need something outside of us. Thinking about me, um, when I was growing up, I always went to church. I was relatively polite, I was well-behaved. I had no big turning away from God moments in my life. Looking at me, the everyday person would not have described me as living a sinful life. I could have even been described as being inherently good. I, you know, I'll admit it myself, I was quite a good child. Um, but looking at these symptoms, this is who I was. 
Without Jesus, I was spiritually dead. I was drifting. I was naturally disobedient. I was naturally following my own desires. And I naturally, by my own nature, was an object of wrath. This might just surprise you because a lot of us like to believe that God views us on a sliding scale. That good people are here, bad people are here, and we are somewhere in the middle. And as long as you're far enough up the scale, then God will accept you and you will get to heaven or whatever. But God does not view us like that because you cannot be any more or less dead. You're either dead or you're alive. It is one or the other. And as this passage, as these opening three verses tell us, naturally, without God, we are dead to the ways of God. As you look at these three verses, you realize that we as a human race are miserably lost. But if you look at these verses again, you will notice that they are written in the past tense. And you were dead in your transgressions and in which you used to live. Because Paul is writing to Christians. He is writing to people that believe Jesus has saved them from the power of sin and death. And for Christians, this is who they were. This is no longer the present. This is the past. But if you're here today and you do not follow Jesus, if he is not the Lord of your life, then these three verses, these are not in the past tense, but the present. For the Christian, these three verses, this is who we were. But for the non-Christian, this is who you are. And I want to say, if you feel lost, if you feel like these opening three verses describe you or some aspect of your life, listen to what the rest of the passage says. Because in the rest of the passage, there is a dramatic change. Because what comes next is what I have alluded to already as the baboon verse. Because with this verse, everything changes. The flow of the passage takes a sharp change of direction. And I call it the baboon verse because there is a big but. If you don't understand that, you can see me after. <laughs> There's a big but. There, the whole thing changes. And this is in the wrong order, sorry. Because, click on the next slide. There's a big but, Be, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace we have been saved. For anybody that reads this verse in uh, verse 4 in the ESV, it starts off with two words. It starts off with, but God. My ESV Bible has a note on these two words. It says, Paul utters the greatest short phrase in the history of human speech, but God. Because with those two words, the reality of who we were is turned on its head, is transformed. I was dead in my sins, but God made me alive. I was following the ways of this world, but God rescued me. I was living alienated from God, but 
God stepped in and did something about it. I was by nature an object of wrath, but God, through Jesus, on the cross, took that wrath for me. Jesus died so I could have life. Death to life, the greatest transformation of my life, and it was none of my own doing. It was all God, his actions, his doing. Vody Bochum, a theologian, says this. He says, I am not a Christian because I was raised to be one. I wasn't. Nor am I a Christian because I was smart enough to figure it out, good enough to find my way, or lucky enough to meet the right people. I am a Christian because the grace of God found me when I wasn't even looking. Look at verse, what verse 5 says again. It says, uh, God made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. The grace of God finds us when we aren't even looking for it. God reaches into our lives and pulls us up out of the pit and gives us new life. But not only life, but life to the full. Before I move on, I want to clarify two words that we have in verse 4 and 5. These are two words we hear in church a lot, and I we just want to avoid any confusion over them. I want us all to be on the same page. So let's define what we mean by mercy and grace. Mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is not getting what we deserve. So in verse 4, it says, God who is rich in mercy. It is a God who loves to pardon the guilty. We have seen due to sin that we deserve the wrath of God but in his mercy, as Psalm 300 says, he does not treat us as our sins deserve. Mercy is not getting what we deserve. And then grace. You might be familiar with the acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense, which is a good way to remember it. But it doesn't really get to what grace is. Because what is grace? Grace is getting more than what we deserve is more than what we deserve. Because for those of us that are in Christ, we get mercy and grace. We don't really get what we deserve, but we also get more than what we deserve. We get a relationship with God. We get, when we're a Christian, we become united to Christ. We are regenerated. We become spiritually alive. You know, God makes us into a new creation. And we've seen the depths from which God rescues us. We've seen who we were, and now we're going to see who we are in Christ. We've seen the depths to which we were and how God rescues us, and now we'll see the heights to which we are raised to. Um, reading from verse 6. And God raised us with Christ and seated, him, seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, 
not by works so that no one can boast. Um, in Christ, we are alive as we, as, as we have already seen, but we are also a few more things according to this passage. Uh, number one, we are exalted with Christ. We are not just made alive, but look at verse six, we are raised up with Christ, seated with him in the heavenly realms. This verse links back to chapter one, verse 20, where um, it says, and God seated him, that is Christ, at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. Because when we trust in Christ, we are united to him, united in such a way that we, in fact, share in Christ's exaltation, that we are not just lifted out of the pit of death and salvation, but we are actually raised with Christ. What does this mean? This means this is not just good news. This is really good news for us. But not only that, look what it says after um, in that verse. It says, in order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in the kindness to us in Christ Jesus. So in Christ we are alive, we are exalted, but we are also lavished with grace. Um, Paul says the incomparable riches of his grace what a superlative. And borrowing the word lavish from chapter one that Paul uses, God lavishes his grace on us. It is so abundant. We can't wrap our heads around it. It's incomparable to anything in this life. In fact, this passage says it will take us eternity. It says in the coming ages, it will take us eternity to discover the depths of God's grace. It is by grace we have been saved, but we are saved so God can show us the riches of his grace, grace upon grace upon grace. We are getting more than we deserve on top of already getting more than what we deserve. It is the riches of a king being given to a peasant forever. So our next point was we are also saved through faith. Verse 8, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and it is not from yourselves, it is a gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. This amazing gift of God, this amazing gift of grace and faith is completely free. There's nothing we bring to the table, there's nothing we can do to earn it, there's nothing we can do to deserve it. We are saved by grace through faith. To receive this grace, all we have to do is believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and we will be saved, Paul says elsewhere. It is really that simple. There's nothing we do to earn it. Paul wants to make this point crystal clear. He, he says, and it is not from yourselves. There's nothing in us that earns salvation. And then just to ensure we understand it, he nearly repeats himself. He says, it is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Our understanding of grace, it should humble us. It should make us aware that our faith in God is nothing dependent on anything we do. In fact, everything we do is the only thing that makes grace necessary. That we're in this position of who we were 
and God has to step in and rescue us. Both grace and faith are free gifts of God. Our faith is not a result of us trying to be a good person or being baptized or going to church or being part of a church. Our faith is a response to the grace of God in our lives. And then this brings me on to my last point. Who we are in Christ, we are transformed by grace. Remember at the start of the passage, um, in verse 1, it says, and you were dead in your transgressions and sins. In the ESV, it finishes that verse by saying, in which you once walked. Um, I think if you go to the next slide. So this is verse 1 of the ESV, and we're going to compare it with verse 10, which is, this is also the ESV, so it's a little different from your Bibles, but there's a, there's a thought I want to get across here. If you look at verse 10, it says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you look at these two verses, there is a repeated word, there is a repeated idea. It is is this idea of walking. There are two ways to walk according to this passage. We can either walk under sin and in who we were, or we can walk in grace through faith in relationship with Christ. And when we walk in Christ, we walk in lives transformed. Because when the grace of God interrupts our lives, it transforms us from death to life, as we've already seen. From walking in our trespasses and sins to walking to a calling to walk in the way of Jesus. To do good works, as verse 10 says, to, to what we were created for. We are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works. God, through his spirit, transforms our lives in salvation, but he continues to transform our lives by his grace, molding us into people that are holier, that are more Christ-like, people with deeper relationships with him and a greater understanding of his grace in their lives. Because when we understand grace, as amazing grace, it should transform every aspect of our lives. Our lives become our response to God's grace. Because when we see the hopelessness and the lostness of the human condition in those opening three verses, when we see what God does to rescue us, and when we see who God makes us in Christ, when we see all this, how can we be the same? Grace should transform how we act. It should change our ability to forgive because we see how we've been forgiven. It should change how we use our money because we see the riches given to us in Christ. It should change how we view others because when we understand grace, we realize there is nobody who the grace of God cannot reach. I hope, as we've briefly looked at this passage, we see that grace is amazing. In a moment, we're going to sing that great hymn that John Newton wrote, Amazing Grace. He wrote it 250 years ago, and it is still as relevant today as when he first wrote it, because the truths of the Bible are unchanging. But we need to do more than sing Amazing Grace. 
we need to continually be amazed by grace. We need to read passages like this again and again and reflect and meditate on the wonderful works that God has done in our lives. When we see who we were and who he makes us, when we see this amazing grace, it should transform our lives. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace that we have been saved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this gift of grace. Lord, we see there is nothing we do to earn it. There is nothing we do to deserve it. Lord, we are amazed by it. That out of your great love for us, you bring us from death to life. That we pray for those here that have been saved by your grace. May our lives be transformed and continue to be transformed by your grace. And for anybody here that does not know you, we pray that your grace will interrupt their lives. That you will bring them from death to life. That they will be able to say, I was spiritually dead, but God saved me by his grace. Lord, we are in awe of this grace and how undeserving we are of it. Help us to walk in obedience to the life you have called us to in Christ. And in his great name we pray. Amen.